Well, in the 1960s and 70s, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier were the biggest names in boxing. They were both heavyweight champions. They hated each other. They had three classic fights. Uh, the first, Joe Frazier won. The second, Ali won. And the third became known famously as the Thriller in Manila. It was the 1st of October, 1975, and these colossal giants go head-to-head -head in a final battle royale. It was a brutal encounter. It was a slugfest. And at the end of the second last round, Ali returns to his corner and he's asking for his team to cut his gloves off. He can't go on. He doesn't want to fight anymore. But Joe Frazier's team doesn't know this. And as Joe came back to his corner, his team told him that they were going to end the fight. Joe protested, I'm okay, boss. I'm going to get him, boss. It's all right, boss. But they signaled to the ref. The fight was over and Ali was declared the winner. Ali later said, Fraser quit just before I did. I didn't think I could fight anymore. The chapters we're up to in Exodus this morning are a fight. Apparently two giants going head to head. It's Yahweh versus Pharaoh. But in the end, it's not even a contest. Uh, this fight isn't anything like Ali versus Frazier. What we're about to read is more like Ali versus me. Uh, it's a bloodbath for Pharaoh because Pharaoh is way out of his league. As we read through it quickly this morning, and I do hope you've read it during the week, uh, what we're going to see is that the whole reason for this contest is that we would know Yahweh. This morning, we're meant to know God as our powerful saviour. We're to know him and to remember him always as our mighty, powerful, saving God. So let's have a look at Exodus. And before the fight begins, Pharaoh thinks he's up for it. Uh, just like today when boxers have their uh, pre-fight press conferences and they're usually filled with a whole bunch of bluster and hoo-ha, well, this contest in Exodus is no different. So come back with me to chapter 5 and we'll listen in on Pharaoh. He's got the microphone first. And before he steps into the ring against Yahweh, Pharaoh doesn't even know who Yahweh is. And so he mocks even the thought of this so-called God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, when you see it in capital letters there, that's the name Yahweh. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. You can just imagine, can't you, Pharaoh scoffing at Moses, laughing at him. Yahweh's telling me what to do, is he? Well, who is Yahweh? I've never heard of him. I don't know him. Of course I won't let Israel go. Okay, now skip across to chapter 7. Because now it's Yahweh's turn to have the mic. And his words before the fight begins are ominous. He says that by the end of the contest, not just Pharaoh, but all Egypt will know who Yahweh is. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, 
And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So here's the tension of these chapters. Pharaoh currently has the Israelites in a stranglehold and he says he doesn't know who Yahweh is. Yahweh says that he's going to take Israel out of Pharaoh's hand and that by the end of it, Pharaoh will know who Yahweh is. That's what these chapters are all about. Yahweh saving his people to make himself known. And it's exactly what God did about three and a half thousand years later as well, isn't it? When he came to earth in the person of Jesus. What did Christ do when he came? He came to save his people to make God known. In his words, in his actions, in his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ came to save God's people and show us most completely who God is. And so as we keep reading on in Exodus and we're being introduced to Yahweh, each time we'll see that ultimately it's Jesus Christ who is on view. And there's lots in here to learn about God as he makes himself known. And the first and most obvious thing we learn about him is that he is sovereign. Yahweh is the one with absolute authority. In the fight between Pharaoh and Yahweh, Pharaoh is helpless. And you can see it even as you just skim the chapters. So look in your Bibles, uh, halfway through chapter 7, and in my NIV I've got the heading, the plague of blood. Then in chapter 8, it's the plague of frogs. Then the plague of gnats, the plague of flies, the plague on the livestock, the plague of boils, the plague of hail, the plague of locusts, the plague of darkness, blow after blow after blow with Pharaoh helpless against this avalanche of destruction. Yahweh here is seen to be powerfully pummeling Pharaoh with each of the plagues. He's riding roughshod over everything with laughable ease. God's authority and power, it's inescapable. But it's even more than that. Come with me to the middle of it all in chapter 9 and verse 13 and we'll listen in as God tells us exactly what's going on. Chapter 9 Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. Now God is saying this just before the seventh plague of hail. But please notice there in verse 15, God's not up to his seventh plague because he still hasn't worked out how to beat Pharaoh. No, in verse 15 God says he could have sent just one plague to wipe all Egypt off the planet. But he didn't do that. He has deliberately prolonged the affair so that through it all, everyone would know who he is. Yahweh could have wiped Egypt out with one blow, but verse 16, 
But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The reason for the multiple plagues, the reason for the pounding after pounding that Pharaoh's being pummeled with is that Pharaoh would know God's power and that Yahweh's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. As we read of the plagues and of Pharaoh's stubbornness, what we see is that nothing happens without God pulling the strings. His sovereignty, his power, his might is so clearly on display. Which is just what we see with the Lord Jesus, isn't it? In the gospel accounts of Christ, time and time again, he just rides roughshod over everything with laughable ease. With just a word, Jesus makes blind eyes see and lame legs walk. He stands up in the middle of a violent storm and with just a calm word, tells it to stop. And it does. He walks to the tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. And with ridiculous ease, Jesus calls him out. And the dead man obeys his voice. Christ himself returned from the dead, never to die again. And on the last great day, the Lord Jesus will condemn all his enemies to everlasting destruction. Jesus Christ, he brings God's sovereignty and his power and his might into sharp focus. But back to Exodus, and yes, God made sure that there were multiple plagues to make himself known, but it wasn't just going to go on and on. With one frightening last judgment on Egypt, Yahweh brought Pharaoh to his knees and so the Israelites were set free. In chapters 11 and 12, we have the terrifying plague on the firstborn sons. God says he's going to pass through Egypt, strike down every firstborn son in the land. Problem is, Israelites are in the land as well and so God tells them how their firstborn sons can be saved. Kill a lamb in their place. Take the blood, put some of it on the door frames of your houses. And God said, when I come and see that a lamb has died in the place of your sons, I'll pass over the houses and none of your sons will die. The Israelites, of course, obey. Their sons are saved that night, but the Egyptians wake to find every one of their firstborn sons dead. From Pharaoh right down to the slaves. And so Pharaoh is crushed. And he begs the Israelites to leave. And just as a lamb was killed in the place of Israel's sons to save them from the terrifying judgment of God, Jesus Christ came to be killed in our place to save us from his judgment. His death was in the place of his people to save them from the wrath of God. And so on that last great day, When Jesus comes as the judge of the living and the dead, since he has already died under the judgment of God, brothers and sisters, we will be saved. We will be spared. We will be safe. But back to Exodus. And in that original account of the Passover, what's obviously very important for Israel is that Yahweh is to be remembered by this. That as far as God's concerned, one thing to know about him is that he is to be remembered. Turn with me to chapter 12. You'll see in verses 1 to 13, 
God gives Moses the instructions on what the Israelites are to do, uh, what lamb is to be killed, how they're to eat it, where the blood is to go on the door frames. And by verse 13 of chapter 12, all the instructions are given. So now we're ready for the plague, but it doesn't come. Not until verse 29. Because before it even happens the first time, Israel is told, every generation has to remember this. We'll pick it up in chapter 12, verse 14. After all the instructions are given, verse 14, the next thing God says is, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Go down to verse 17. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Go again, verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. Finally, in verse 29, we get the actual Passover and God striking down the firstborn sons of Egypt. But then, in verse 42, we're back to more instructions on remembering this in future generations. And then in verses 43 to 49, there's still more on how to commemorate the Passover in years to come. And then in chapter 13... There's yet another lengthy exhortation from God telling Israel to commemorate this day every year from now on. Who is Yahweh? He is to be remembered. The Exodus was the defining moment for Old Testament Israel. It defined for them who they were. They were the helpless, desperate, needy people who couldn't save themselves. And the Exodus defined for them who Yahweh was. He was their powerful God who graciously saved them. To know God and to understand themselves, Israel needed to remember the salvation of Yahweh at the Exodus. Just like you and I need to remember Jesus Christ and his death for us to save us. The cross of Christ reveals to us who our God is. He is compassionate, forgiving, merciful, powerful, just. And the cross of Christ shows us who we are, broken, helpless, sinners, who can't save ourselves. But we've been wonderfully made into the people of God only by his grace and his power. And so you and I, we are to remember Jesus Christ deliberately, intentionally, constantly. We are to remember the Lord Jesus. So you probably know on the night before Jesus died, uh, he was with his Jewish disciples and he was actually celebrating this ancient Passover meal with them. And he said to them that he was about to do something even bigger than the Exodus. And so from now on, they were to remember him not the Exodus. The Apostle Paul, just before he dies, he was writing his last letter to his dear friend Timothy. Uh, Timothy himself had been discipled into Christ uh, by Paul over many years, and Paul says to him, by way of parting words, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the uh, words are going to come up on the screen for you. 
Paul's parting words to Timothy are, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. As the people of God, we're to know him and remember him. More on this in a bit. But back to Exodus. And something else to know about Yahweh is that he's victorious. The plague on the firstborn son sees Pharaoh yield and he begs Israel to leave. They do. God leads them to the Red Sea. Pharaoh, though, of course, changes his mind, chases after the Israelites. And as the Israelites have the sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them, they panic. And they scream out to Moses that they would have preferred to stay as slaves in Egypt than die here in the desert. And Moses answers the people in chapter 14. Have a look at it. Chapter 14 and verse 13. In their panic, Moses says, chapter 14, verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And so we're back to the start, that the Egyptians, Pharaoh, would know that Yahweh is God. And it's a great line in verse 14, don't you think? Verse 14, Moses says, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Yahweh is victorious. He will do it all. And of course, what comes next is the famous crossing of the Red Sea by the power of God, the drowning of the Egyptian army as they try to follow them, with the result that the Egyptians know Yahweh. They know that he is God and that he is victorious. And we know it as well, don't we? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. He's alive. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Our sins are forgiven. Our salvation has been won. He has conquered all of our enemies. The devil, death, sin, any power, ruler or authority that stand against us. We are told in Colossians chapter 2 that by the cross, Christ has disarmed them, made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them. In Christ, God is victorious so can you see what these chapters are helping us to see about the lord jesus he is sovereign he is powerful he is victorious nothing can stand in his way he saves his people he will save them our salvation is secure and can you see also that the more we know of christ the more we know of ourselves who are we we're the saved people of god we're sinners broken and helpless, needy, dependent, desperate people who've been rescued from ourselves and our sin and its power and its final judgment so that now, gloriously, wonderfully, we safely belong 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're to remember him always. But how could we ever forget? (laughs) How could we ever forget? How could we live as if this doesn't matter? How could we live as if this is just stories in a book? How could we walk out of here and live for someone or something else? How could we ever forget our God? No, we're to be the people who know our God and who remember our God. Let's intentionally, deliberately, regularly remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the hecticness of our days, the demands and pressures that we face, the seductions and the temptations of this world, they will try and push God to the back of our minds. But we don't want that, do we? Our God is glorious. He's powerfully saved us so that we would know him and remember him. And so just like Israel, when they were overcome by their enemies, when you are next overcome by your sin, when you're next feeling wearied by your sin and it's weighing heavily on your mind and your struggle just seems pointless, when the darkness of your sin next descends on your soul, know your God. Remember your God. Speak to yourself. Preach to yourself. Remind yourself, make it clear to yourself in your own mind, in the midst of your sin, remember Jesus Christ, your mighty, sovereign, victorious God and Saviour. He has already rescued you. Jesus Christ has already died for you. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. But go to the other end of the scale. And when you next find yourself feeling a little self-assured, feeling like you've basically arrived as a Christian, got most of the bases covered, not much work to do left really in your life, and, well, you don't really have that much need of God anymore. You don't feel the need to pray. You do pretty much everything for yourself, and you do a pretty good job. You're doing all right, going it alone. The next time you're cruising in your own strength, know your God. Remember your God. Remind yourself. Tell yourself. Preach to yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the mighty, sovereign, victorious God and Saviour, and you are the helpless, needy, desperate sinner who needs Jesus Christ, not just to save you, but to keep you and sustain you. You need him to breathe, let alone live as his child. Brothers and sisters, whatever circumstance or mood or mental state or delight or sadness you ever find yourself in, whoever you are, wherever you are, at all times, Know your God. Remember your God. He's your powerful saviour.